0: the 14th, I have to go back and recap where we were on Thursday in the land where absolutism just as famously failed under the Stuart kings in England. When we left our story, the struggle between Parliament and Charles I in the 1620s had led Charles to dismiss Parliament in 1629 and to try to govern without it. And he actually did this until 1640. But in 1638, He made the mistake of trying to impose Anglican conformity on the Calvinist Scots. And they responded by invading England in 1639. So, just to get the funds to defend the country, Charles I had to reconvene Parliament, which he did in 1640. And, to make matters worse, the following year, those Irish revolted once again and massacred Roughly 12,000 people. These were Protestant settlers, mostly Scotch Presbyterians in Ulster. Uh, The numbers of victims actually vary. Again, Charles needed money to send troops to defend the Protestants. And again, he found himself in conflict with Parliament, which insisted upon attaching strings to every money they voted. The Puritans had captured the majority in Parliament. And they were determined to use this opportunity to turn all three countries, England, Scotland, and Ireland, Calvinist. Charles resisted, and the result was a civil war between the supporters of Charles, royalists, cavaliers they're called, and roughly the supporters of the Puritans in Parliament. This war resulted in the subjection of Ireland and Scotland. Let's see where we are. Uh, Oliver Cromwell, a Puritan member of parliament and an inspired amateur in military affairs, conquered Ireland in 1649. He slaughtered Catholics right and left, several hundred thousand, uh, even more freely than he had slaughtered royalists in England. And then Cromwell conquered Scotland in 1650 and 51, and both the Scots and the Irish were compelled to accept union, in Cromwell's Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland. And this lasted from 1649 to 1660. It's the precursor for Britain, which was formally established in 1770. Beginning around the 1960s, many English historians, looking back, and also, I might say, under the influence of a kind of neo-Marxism, began calling this English Civil War a revolution. And as we saw last week, as in the Reformation, once uh, the cake of custom gets broken, opinion does tend to get radicalized. Groups pop up, pressing for yet more and more far-reaching demands. In this case, the levelers arose who demanded complete equality for everyone, and the diggers were a group demanding uh, that the land be distributed, actually, to anybody who was able to farm it. Now, this explosion of political discussion uh, resulted in pamphlets and broadsides, maybe 20,000 of them, being uh, distributed. And this certainly did contribute to the politicization of the common person in England. But the most revolutionary event of the Civil War in this period was the trial of King Charles I, who was convicted of treason and then beheaded in 1649. And this was followed, this regicide, by the establishment of a republic called, in this case, the Commonwealth. Now, is this a revolution? Well, you've got all those pamphlets. You've got all those people talking egalitarianism. You've put a hereditary monarch who claimed to be ruling by the grace of God on trial. Okay. But this is not social revolution. The great lords no longer had their own House of Parliament. Uh, The House of Lords was abolished. But they simply went home to their beautiful country estates, uh, continued to collect their munificent rents from the farmers who worked their lands, hunted their foxes. Nobody threatened them. No one confiscated their immense wealth. Uh, They were never failed. Uh, to be addressed with due deference uh, with the titles they were born to, Duke, Earl, milord just as before. This was not a social revolution. Uh, This was a political revolution. And like so many reformers, when they resort to violence, the people who had control of violence came out on top. Parliament lost control of their own revolution when they made the fatal mistake of trying to disband Cromwell's new model army without bothering to pay the soldiers first. And the result was Cromwell established a military dictatorship of his fellow Puritans. Now Cromwell got along with Parliament uh, no better than the Stuarts had. This is a famous picture of himself where he told the the painter to paint me warts and all. Uh, Cromwell was the kind of guy who could say things like, necessity knows no law, or we're doing not what they want, but what's good for them. And so a guy like this is not very likely to be terribly successful in putting together parliamentary majorities. In fact, in 1653, he decided to dismiss parliament altogether. Uh, Why bother with them? But unlike the other great military dictatorship uh, pre-20th century, unlike Napoleon, Cromwell established no lasting institutions. When he died in 1658, nobody could figure out how they were going to govern this country until one of his own generals hit upon the idea, uh, let's restore the Stuarts. So they invited Charles I's son uh, to return to England. He became Charles II. And this was known as the Restoration. That is the restoration of the monarchy. And when Charles died in 1685, his brother James, James II, succeeded him. But this Restoration settlement, which was basically a return to the status quo before the Civil War, with sovereignty supposedly balanced between Crown and Parliament, was inherently unstable. And in 1688, the Parliament replaced the Stuarts altogether in an event known in England, at any rate, as the Glorious Revolution. So I want to step back a bit and look at this thing as a whole, the big picture. You can look at the whole history of England in the 17th century, from the death of Queen Elizabeth I in 1603 to the Glorious Revolution of 1688, that is, all four, the reigns of all four Stuarts, with Cromwell in between, as essentially a struggle over sovereignty between Parliament, who represented landowners in one House, House of Commons, elected landowners in the other, House of Lords, not, and the Crown. That is, this is a struggle over who shall have the final say, over particularly the three things that most mattered in the 17th century, religion, foreign policy, and taxes. And these three things were intimately connected, at least in people's minds because without the power to tax, no government could build an army or a navy sufficient to conduct a credible foreign policy. And secondly, without consensus on religion, uh, without the power to tax, no government could build, uh, without consensus on religion, the state itself, people thought, would be threatened, both by outsiders, but particularly by disloyal elements inside who would make alliances with threatening outsiders in order to get the upper hand over the rest of their countrymen. When the Stuart family was finally restored to the throne in 1660, this question over who had the final say still had not been settled. Parliament hoped that the Stuarts would simply allow order to be reestablished without they're having to, to foot the bill for a Puritan army that was going to try to run every aspect of their lives. But Parliament fully intended to dictate the monarch's policies itself. The Stuart Kings, on the other hand, hoped that with time they could build up enough popular support to reestablish the crown in what they felt was its rightful position, not just as some executive, some CEO executing Parliament's policy, but is the true sovereign, the one who decides, the decider. So this restoration settlement, which is basically just a series of laws uh, taking England back to uh, what what the world was like before the regicide and the Civil War and Cromwell's protectorate, restoring the crown, restoring the House of Lords, restoring the established church, it was based upon unspoken but quite contradictory assumptions by the two parties to this contract. And basically that's what we've got here, a contract between Parliament and Crown. And the assumptions underlying uh, this contract were certainly bound to make it unworkable. Both the legislature and the executive was determined to be in the driver's seat. Now the Stuarts were at a disadvantage. They were returning to England. After more than a decade abroad, the country hardly knew them. How were they going to make themselves popular enough to get the upper hand? Both Charles II and his brother James II tried to build a base of popular support by granting toleration to England's religious minorities. And by now, given the Civil War period and all of that anarchy, uh, lights please, uh, there were lots of minorities. And they gambled that religious dissenters, out of sheer gratitude, would support them. And religious dissenters were Catholics, but also Baptists, Congregationalists, Quakers, etc. Thus, they were acting just like Henry IV of France with his Edict of Nantes. Restore, the restored Stuarts were enacting, by edict, toleration as a tool of domestic policy. Parliament, however, was committed to the established Church of England and its religious monopoly. It wasn't willing to grant toleration even to other Protestants, much less Catholics. And this was both for religious reasons and because it deeply distrusted the religious minorities. So Charles II and after him his brother James tried to go around Parliament, which refused to enact toleration, and simply declare toleration on their own authority. Uh, just as Henry IV had done, the Edict of Nantes, after all, was an edict, something issued by the king. Now, what the two Stuart brothers issued was a Declaration of Indulgence, as it was called. They suspended by fiat the laws persecuting religious minorities. This is a kind of executive pardon, which has always been allowed executives, but here they're making a kind of blanket amnesty, in effect. Charles II did it in 1672, and as a consequence, people like the famous Baptist writer John Bunyan, who wrote, uh, some of you may know, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, got out of jail. Parliament was furious, and it forced the king to rescind the Declaration of Indulgence the following year. Now this proved very awkward for the royal family not just politically in terms of its hopes of building a base but personally because the king's very own brother James was one of those religious minorities uh, that the Declaration of Intelligence tolerated. He while abroad in exile in France had converted to Catholicism. So the repeal or the recension of the Edict of indulgence, this to- blanket toleration, meant that the heir to the throne was among those subjects of the crown whose religion was illegal. When Charles II died in 1685, James came to the throne, and he tried a, to- a, a policy of tolerance one more time. Now, James, you may remember you may those of you who do uh, Brit- uh, American history may recognized James as the person who befriended the Quaker, William Penn. He gave Penn Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania was to be a territory in which religious minorities, like the Quakers, could be tolerated. So James issued his own acts of indulgence in 1687, and then one of the first things he did after minorities were tolerated was to employ Irish Catholic officers in his army. And of course he did this because he wanted an army that would be loyal to him. And naturally this alarmed the Protestant Parliament which forced him, just as it had his brother, to rescind these acts of indulgence. But James tried again in 1688 and again there was great uproar in Parliament who denounced this as an illegal, arbitrary, usurpation of parliamentary authority. Now this is not the general picture people used to get about the glorious revolution, that it was a revolution in order to prevent toleration in England. But they claimed and this is the way they universalized their interest, that James was trying to institute a government of men and not laws. Why should he be able to override the laws of the country? And of course behind that is their fear that under James Catholics are going to take over the country. Now, if a law passed by Parliament said religious minorities are illegal, then the king could not suspend that law. This is the context in which you, you should read Locke. When Locke says that, and I quote, the legislative or supreme power of any commonwealth is bound to govern by established standing laws not by extemporary decrees. This is a phrase Locke uses over and over again. This sounds very good. But what he's referring to as extemporary decrees are these declarations of indulgence, that is, religious toleration by the two Stuart boys. (laughs) James II then committed the unforgivable sin. Late in life, he had a son, and the son was baptized Catholic. And that meant that the heir to the throne would certainly be committed to the same policy of toleration as his father. So Parliament just decided to get rid of James a second before it was too late. Now James, fortunately for Parliament, already had a grown-up daughter, Mary, who was a Protestant and was married to William of Orange of the Netherlands, also a Protestant, William of Orange had the job of Stadtholder. It's a kind of a mini-monarch in the Netherlands. So Parliament invited William to invade England and overthrow their own king and the man who was, of course, William's own father-in-law, James II. And William did that in 1688. And this is what is called the Glorious Revolution. The true glory is that Unlike the previous Puritan revolution of mid-century, unlike the social revolutions in France in the 18th and Russia in the 20th century, this revolution didn't radicalize. It therefore didn't turn into a conflict that could ultimately, must ultimately, end in either uh, dictatorship or some other form of despotism. Also, the revolutionaries didn't turn on each other but instead became normal political parties, known then as Whigs and Tories. Uh, They later became more or less uh, liberals and conservatives. They fought each other, yes, but legally, on the floors of Parliament, and for electoral parliamentary power. So that's the first achievement, and that really is glorious. Secondly, William and Mary were willing to accept, as a condition for taking the crown, Parliament's Bill of Rights of 1689, which enumerated the civil liberties of the English. So this is a contract. They also were willing to accept, this is third, the Mutiny Act of 1689. This act required the Crown to seek parliamentary approval every year in order to keep funds for the army. If, the army, if there was going to be an army in being, its funds had to be renewed every year. Parliament never granted money that would pay military expenses for more than one year at a time. So constitutionally, this was Parliament's way that no more would there be something like happened under Charles I, that the king, in trouble with Parliament, would just say, well, go home, I'll govern without you. Uh, Cromwell had tried to do the same. Now, every country needs an army, and this meant that Parliament had to be in session every year, not just when it pleased the crown to call it it also meant that parliament controlled the purse that is it ultimately controlled the means of legal violence but william and mary could live with that uh, though william himself was having constant trouble with his own parliament in holland he didn't really care uh, about how england was governed all he wanted was to turn england away from the wars that it was having with the Netherlands over trade and get England to wage a hostile foreign policy against the Netherlands' chief enemy, Catholic France, under Louis XIV. And so long as William could have his way in foreign policy, he was willing to let Parliament have its way in everything else. And he didn't really have any trouble succeeding in this foreign policy reversal because this was actually the foreign policy Parliament wanted itself. So the revolution of 1688 also sees a big change in Britain's geopolitics in a belligerently anti-French direction. From 1559 to 1688, nearly 100 years, England and France have almost always been at peace. Now all that changes. And from 1689 to the defeat of Napoleon in 1815, They would fight each other in seven major wars. Fourth, the Revolution of 1688 also signified a revolution in public finance. Investors were now willing to lend money to the government since it was under control of Parliament, the property owners of England, in whom they had great faith. The Bank of England was founded in 1694 as a direct result And this allowed government to utilize private capital to perform public services. Because of the good relations between Crown and Parliament, the government had no trouble floating huge loans, war loans, at guaranteed interest rates. And that made it possible for England to conduct an extremely warlike foreign policy. Fifth, the year after the revolution in 1689... Parliament passed its own Toleration Act and it legalized dissenting Protestants. This was a reward to the Protestant minority groups, all of them, for having supported Parliament in kicking out James II. That is, it was their reward for refusing to be satisfied with toleration at Stuart Hands in the Declaration of Indulgences. Now, toleration didn't mean, even now, that Protestant dissenters uh, got equality before the law with the members of the established Anglican Church. They were still subjected to legal discrimination. Uh, no one could hold public office in England unless he was willing to take Holy Communion in the Anglican Rite. And even when these legal barriers began to melt away in the late 18th and early 19th century, dissenting Protestants, Baptist, Quakers, uh, Later on, Methodists and Unitarians were discriminated against socially. Still, now they had freedom to worship as they liked. This was certainly a step forward. So we can ask, do all of these achievements make this English Revolution glorious? Well, yes, if you're in England. I hope you all know Mel Brooks' famous movie, The Producers, and the great song. Springtime for Hitler and Germany, winter for Poland and France. Well, you could put the same thing uh, to tune of the Glorious Revolution. If you move away from the center, springtime in London, where it really was spring, and move out into the peripheries, the Scottish Islands and Ireland, you'll see that this was not uh, springtime indeed, but winter. The Toleration Act did not include Catholics. They remained outlawed. And since all of the Irish and much of the Highlanders remained Catholic, they were, in effect, outlaws in their own countries. The Irish, uh, this is Northern Ireland, this is, sorry, this is the Scottish Highlands, Uh, they, the the Scots had remained loyal to the deposed Stuarts, now living in France. Uh, They continued for the next 50 years to refer to James and then later his grandson, Bonnie, Prince Charlie, as the king across the waters. Several times they revolted. Each time they were crushed. And after their last revolt in 1745-46, the highlands were cleansed militarily of their population. Clearances were the term. They were cleared. Their houses were torn down and anyone who didn't die of starvation or exposure made his weary way to Canada or the American colonies. And in the Highlands, uh, they were replaced by sheep. Uh, These once thriving farming communities became places basically to do more hunting, and the wearing of plaid, known as tartans, was outlawed. Now, the Irish also had to be subdued by force by William's army at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. Uh, William William defeated James II, who was a seasoned commander but lost nonetheless. After this, the Irish were robbed of their property, and by 1700, only about an eighth of Ireland was still owned by native Irish. Moreover, a series of laws were passed by Parliament against Catholics to make sure that the Irish wouldn't acquire any considerable property in the future. Catholic priests and schools were banned in Ireland. Uh, Catholic parents were forbidden to send their children abroad to go to school either. Catholics were forbidden to attend the university. Uh, They couldn't go to Oxford and Cambridge until 1872. They were forbidden to purchase land. They were forbidden to inherit land from Protestants they were forbidden to own a horse worth more than five pounds, they were forbidden to become an attorney, or if they were a small shopkeeper or artisan, they were forbidden to hire more than two apprentices. That means they were forbidden to succeed in business. A Catholic who was unlucky enough to have a son who turned Protestant would automatically lose all of his property in his son's favor. The purpose of these penal laws, as they were called, was to reduce the Irish to peasants and to keep them there. And these laws were fully successful. Now the struggle for sovereignty in England in the 17th century was not really very different from what was taking place all across Europe in this period and on into the 18th century, though these struggles were not always punctuated by civil wars because rarely were the two sides so evenly balanced as in England. What is different in England is not the nature of the quarrels themselves, but the outcome with Parliament supreme, which was an outcome that no other large, important European power would achieve until the 19th century. So we should ask why did Parliament win in England, where in most other places it was the crown? And I will give you Anderson's oversimplification. First, the answer is military. William's army won the battle. James's army did not. James had won, things would have changed. Secondly, though, and more fundamentally in long run, the English crown lacked the wherewithal to project power. It lacked the funds with which to reward its friends. It lacked the police power with which to punish or control its enemies. And why did it lack police power? The answer is probably geopolitical. I hate to say this, it seems so trite, but England was an island. And therefore, unlike continental powers, it didn't usually need a big army, at least not for defense. And so it was able to project itself offensively abroad using naval power. But a navy, of course, is useless if you want crowd control uh, or any other form of projecting power internally within your own country. So the crown never had the building blocks with which to develop something like a mounted police that other states had, like the dragoons, which Louis XIV had. So everywhere else in Europe... In almost every country, we see either a fragmentation of power into small polities, Switzerland, uh, the United Provinces, the Netherlands, or the development of what came to be called absolutism. Now, what is absolutism? At its most general level, it means the concentration of authority within the state and the elevation of the state's power above all other institutions of society. And this is the polity that is symbolized in the frontispiece of Hobbes's Leviathan. Now, Hobbes, you know, didn't really care whether the sovereign was a monarch or an assembly, as long as it was only one of them and supreme. In the case of France, the sovereign was embodied in the king. Louis XIV is supposed to have said, l'état c'est moi, I am the state. Perhaps he never said that, but his chief clergyman, Bishop Bossuet. Said, did say, all the state is in him, and the will of all the people is included in his. That is, Louis is basically Hobbes's artificial man. And as we'll see next week, Rousseau is going to take this notion that the sovereign embodies the will of all the people to its revolutionary extremes, that the people collectively then themselves become the sovereign. Now, the prerequisites for absolutism in France were the crises in state and society that occurred everywhere in the 17th century, plague, witch panics, wars, particularly civil wars, and rebellions. All of this brings a longing on the part of the people for order, for peace and quiet. The core of absolutism is the reduction of the power of a whole range of alternative sources of authority, of competitors to the crown, Uh, not just the church and the courts and the nobility, but also city councils, uh, guilds, and uh, representative assemblies, whether you call them parliaments or diets or estates. Absolutism also meant putting in their place a bureaucratic and legal system that was dependent on the sovereign. Now, in the past... Law had resided in custom, in the family, in the church, in various corporate bodies, as well as in royal decrees. But after the turmoils of the first half of the 17th century, people were willing to turn away from these foci of law and in most places to allow law to reside in a single institution. In England, after long struggles, that institution is singly Parliament. England did not have a mixed constitution, contrary to what so many political theorists in the 18th century thought. Parliament was sovereign. But on the continent, in most places, the sovereign was the crown. Now I'm going to turn to the most famous contemporary embodiment of this power, Louis XIV of France. His reign provides the template that other monarchs in Europe uh, hope to use for their own ends. Now, there have traditionally been two views of Louis XIV. One was popular in France, and it's still popular there. In this view, Louis really was the Sun King, which was his moniker at this time. And this view associates Louis with France's era of great domestic peace after a century of strife and civil war. It associates Louis with the era of great international power, when France was the undisputed leader on the continent militarily, politically, and also culturally. On the other hand, there is a view of Louis that was popular first in England and Holland, which later spread to their colonies and to many of the German states. And according to this view, Louis was a cruel tyrant. I think it's no accident that Captain Hook looks just like him. I mean, is that a ringer or not? Now, here's the indictment. Louis reinstated religious persecution, first going against dissident Catholics, then against Jews whom he expelled uh, from France's colonies in March of 1685, and then uh, finally that October, the very year that James II is beginning his short-lived reign and trying to bring toleration to Catholics In England, Louis revokes the Edict of Nantes. Now, why does he do this? He does it by fiat, by the way, but it had been by fiat that his grandfather, Henry IV, had granted the Edict of Nantes. This had given perpetual toleration to the Huguenots and, as you know, in some places, actual privileges. They had castles. Uh, This gave them effective control over their own regions. Now, it's true, many of these privileges had already been lost under Louis's predecessor, uh, 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 the Prime Minister Cardinal Richelieu. But at the beginning of Louis's reign, France still allowed more religious toleration than any other large state in Europe. And Louis changed that. At first, he sent mounted police, known as dragoons, uh, around and had them quartered in Huguenot homes. And that's where our word "dragoon" comes from. It means forcing someone to do what you want. They wanted to force them to change their religion. Then he exiled Huguenot clergymen. Then ordinary Huguenots were given the choice of converting to Catholicism or being made galley slaves. Uh, as you can see, Charlton Heston decided uh, against conversion. Their children were rebaptized, and. The rest went into exile. More than a quarter of a million emigrated to England, to Holland, uh, to the Protestant t- states in Germany like Prussia, and to the New World. Others went underground, uh, coming out later on, 50 years later, but even then, like Catholics in England, uh, disadvantaged, living in only semi-legal existence. The rest, uh, about It's estimated about a million converted to outright Catholicism. So in this view, Louis is, first of all, the tormentor of Protestants, but he's also, in the negative view, someone who squandered the public's money on selfish luxuries. Uh, The fact that the menu for one royal banquet included 168 dishes was routinely uh, cited. Louis was also seen as the man who ruined France in wars, conducted for his own personal glory. During 30 of Louis's 54 years of effective rule, France was at war with Flanders, against the Dutch, against various German princes, against Spain, against England, against the Habsburgs. Now it's true, France got a lot of territory out of this. Uh, it got, for example, Alsace-Lorraine, But in the course of this, Louis united all of Europe against him, particularly when he declared the Pyrenees no longer exist. Uh, This was a costly bon mot for him. In the end, he did manage to get the crown of Spain for his grandson, in that way making some kind of bond with Spain. But he did this at the cost of ruining his finances, impoverishing France to the point of driving some of his subjects to cannibalism so in this negative view it is Louis' dictatorial system of royal absolutism that sets in motion a train of oppression that ultimately leads to the French revolution three quarters of a century later this view of Louis as a monster of pride and vanity and aggression lives on as a kind of folk wisdom in Protestant countries as we see in this Familiar caricature. Now, why do both sides think Louis XIV is so important? Well, for one thing, he's one of those monarchs like uh, Elizabeth I or Queen Victoria who are in office so long that they give their names to a whole era, uh, partly because they're just there. Elizabeth reigned 45 years, Victoria 64 years, Louis was 54 years at the helm and that isn't even counting the 17 years of his boyhood uh, when his mother's lover, Cardinal Mazarin, was governing for him. So basically, he's there 72 years in all. In 72 years, a lot is going to happen, and some of it is going to be good, and he's going to get credit for it. So that's the first reason, longevity. Secondly, France was a country whose size and prosperity destined it to play an important role. Its land was very fertile, and this was an agricultural age, and that meant it was rich, though not all of its people were rich. It was twice as populous as Spain, and three times as populous as England. So it is big. Third, Louis was also extremely extremely fortunate in the international constellation that existed when he took power. Much of the prestige France enjoyed, we now see, was independent of any particular virtue stemming from absolutism, but was almost an automatic result of France's international power that itself was a result of other countries' international weakness. When Louis reached adulthood in 1661, International Constellation could have hardly been more favorable. Those places with populations large enough to have posed a threat, Italy and especially the German lands, were fragmented among a multiplicity of states. The only powers, therefore, that could have challenged him were safely far away in the east. There was Sweden, which for a while had managed, in fact, to be arbiter of Europe. Now, Sweden had a small population, Uh, not more than a million. But in those days, uh, conditions could equalize out many of the advantages and disadvantages that we associate with size. Uh, In in this period, armies are still relatively small, weapons are still relatively simple, um, and when supplies are few and communications are poor, even for the greatest powers, a small people like Sweden could, if it had brilliant military leadership, play the role of a great power. And Sweden in the 17th century had a succession of great leaders, beginning with Gustavus Adolphus, its great general and king, uh, during the Thirty Years' War. In the 1660s, Sweden controlled the north coast of Germany, Finland, Estonia, Latvia. The Baltic was really a Swedish lake. And they made inroads into Russia They also had, as you see here, strongholds on the German coast. They look really poised to come down and take over Central Europe. And the result of all this was for France. Sweden was no threat to France. It was too far away, but it was an enhancement of French power. It was Sweden's intervention on behalf of the Protestants in the Thirty Years' War that prevented the triumph of France's big rival, the Austrian Habsburgs, here gray. Now, this was the state that some people, at any rate, thought was uh, threatening to achieve universal monarchy, so much power that the other states would have to be subordinate to its will. For the rest of the century, Sweden remained powerful, but it was very busy fighting the Poles and the Russians. And this not only kept Sweden occupied, but it occupied the Poles and the Russians until uh, Peter the Great beat back the Swedes at the Battle of Potava here. But look at how far the Swedes have really gotten. As for the German states, they had barely begun to recover from Thirty Years' War that ended in 1648. The German population, as you know, was devastated. Uh, the treaties of Westphalia that ended the Thirty Years' War ensured the political independence of individual princelings, grand dukes, free knights, counts, electors. They declared every one of these big nobles to have the rights of a sovereign. Okay. But the same treaties that ensured their independence ensured, of course, Central Europeans' fragmentation. So here are the Austrians, here are the Swedes, here are the Prussians, and this cream colored stuff is divided among about uh, two or three hundred small states. So basically, Central Europe is a power vacuum. Louis XIV was actually able to take a number of these little German states into his pay. Even bigger states, Prussia and Bavaria, uh, were being paid by him and became basically French satellites. Louis' other neighbors posed no threat. England in the 1660s was just recovering from Cromwell's dictatorship. The House of Stuart had been restored, but as you know, relations between the Stuarts and Parliament uh, were bad, and so Parliament was not going to give Charles II enough money even to govern, let alone have an active foreign policy. So the Brits are basically paralyzed from 1660 to 1688. And during this time, Charles and then his brother, James II, uh, are actually, as you know, taking money from France, just like a lot of those German states. And then, of course, there are the Netherlands, the Dutch Netherlands, the United uh, Netherlands, as they're called on this map. Now, they were also very rich, and they were Louis's natural antagonists because they, of course, felt that they were in danger of being followed up. But they, too, were immobilized by a constitutional crisis between the urban merchant class based in Amsterdam and uh, the rural faction of peasants and nobility that favored the House of Orange, whose stadtholder was William of Orange, husband of Mary Stuart, and consort in England after 1688. So for a number of years, the Dutch Netherlands are in a situation really of veiled civil war. So then let's look at Spain. What about Spain? This is France's historic antagonist, and as you see, Spain controls a lot of territory here. But already by 1640, Spain appeared on the verge of collapse, both with internal revolts and rapidly falling birth rates. By the 17th century, it was also hit by another bout of plague, so it begins to lose population not only relatively, but absolutely. And if that weren't enough, the government of Spain went and shot itself in the foot. In 168, it decided to expel the Moriscos. These, remember, were those Spaniards whose ancestors had once adopted Islam during the long Muslim period, which began 900 years earlier but they had reconverted to Christianity during the centuries of Reconquista and uh, particularly after the defeat of the last Muslim kingdom in Grenada in 1492. But they remain a sizable minority and in the town of Valencia, they're actually a third of the population. But they were not trusted. Officially, they were Christian, but they kept their old ways. As you can see, they wore their old Uh, Clothing, their women uh, uh, remained covered. They continued to speak Arabic, even though uh, the government of Spain outlawed Arabic. And they were felt increasingly to be unassimilable. So Spain looks at them as a kind of fifth column should the Ottomans ever come up again from Africa. And so between 1609 and 1611, up to 275,000 Moriscos are driven out of Spain. Uh, This is another early example of ethnic cleansing. So we have 1492, the Jews. We have 1499, the Moors in Grenada. We have 1609 to 11, the Moriscos in Spain. We have 1685, the Huguenots in France. We have 1746, the Highlanders in Scotland. So this is the kind you could say, this is state building by getting rid of your minorities. Unlike the Jews in 1492, the Moriscos were simply put in boats with no more than what they could carry with them on their backs. And by the way, uh, one of Osama bin Laden's chief goals is to get Spain back. Bottom line, Louis XIV's accession to personal rule In 1661, uh, at that time, Spain disposed of a population of about 7 or 8 million compared to France, which had a population of 16 million. Most fundamentally, Spain had been crippled by the burdens of 100 years of playing the role of a great power when it never really had either the population or the economy to support that. I think it was becoming increasingly clear that Spain had been, in a geopolitical sense, an overachiever for quite a while. Now, there were, of course, still some powerful rivals uh, to Louis XIV's France. The Habsburg monarchy, for example. The Habsburgs were weakened by the fact, however, that they didn't govern a single unified state. Uh, As you can see by looking at the gray parts, they've got Bohemia, Moravia, they've got Austria, they've got Tyrol, and a lot of smaller parts that aren't even named. Nevertheless, they might have posed a challenge to France if they hadn't been so hard-pressed on their eastern frontier by the Turks. mid-17th century saw a surprising new burst of Turkish power at the Habsburgs' back door. Now, we haven't heard about the Turks in a while, uh, they had posed a threat to the West during the first half of the sixteenth century and had also besieged Vienna then. Uh, but their power was based on their military proficiency, and it had gone into a kind of temporary uh, stasis, you could say after Suleiman the Magnificent. A series of sultans lost interest in the war in wars and scarcely emerged from their harems, moreover. Mohammed the Conqueror in 1453 had established a tradition in the Ottoman Empire that meant that every new sultan, in order to stabilize his power, had to strangle his younger brothers and half-brothers. And this was to prevent the kind of horrible wars over succession that were tearing up France in the 16th century and other countries in Europe as well. Now, as the sultan's harems got larger and larger with more and more conquests, the sibling count got larger and larger as well. This systematic fratricide was finally stopped as public opinion just couldn't stand the sight of these tiny little coffins coming out of Topkapi Palace every time uh, a new sultan took power. But for several decades, the sultans remained almost a puppet of their own soldiers. In the 1650s, however, this situation changed. There was a drastic administrative shakeup in Constantinople, and the Turks' military efficiency and zeal was revived. In the 1660s, they captured Crete. Janissaries were again mobilizing in Hungary, and they resumed their drive up the Danube into Austria. In Germany, at the emperor's orders, Special Turk bells sounded the alarm in every village. Italy also began to prepare for an invasion. And in 1683, the Turks got as far as Vienna once again and besieged it. The Habsburg armies were only saved by the arrival of the elected King of Poland, Jan Sobieski, and the Poles basically saved Europe. But it was only in 1694 that the Habsburgs were actually able to drive the Turks back out of Hungary and the Treaty of Karlowitz uh, in 1699, the Turks ratified uh, this move. And 1699, the Treaty of Karlowitz is sort of the beginning of this slow, long shrinkage of Ottoman power in Europe that ends during the First World War. The bottom line for France during the first 30 years of Louis' reign His Habsburg rivals were mightily preoccupied. The fundamental fact was that he was extraordinarily fortunate in being surrounded by weak neighbors, including, until 1688, a very weak Britain. And their weakness made France, which was stable and well-off, look all the more resplendent. Now let's look at Louis' accomplishments. Under Louis, France enjoyed continuous domestic peace for the first time in a 100 years. It had long been subjected, as you know, to periodic feuds, revolts, civil wars, uh, mostly led by its obstreperous grand nobility. And the last of these was known as the Fronde. It occurred during Louis's childhood. And some of these rebels fighting each other actually invaded his own bedroom. Uh, Louis was... Uh, officially, king at the age of five, but the nobles themselves were acting like his rulers, not his subjects, and his, even his own governors were acting like independent sovereigns. So the majority of France were actually grateful to Louis for rooting out the bases of internal violence and were even willing to put up with domestic religious persecution in, and the quashing of their traditional liberties. If that's what it took to reestablish order, it's this rage for order that is the psychological basis for his policy towards the Huguenots, who in reality were not causing any trouble at all. He felt that he was eliminating a potential state within a state. Uh, what had happened to Charles I was an awful warning for him. Do you know what? Remember what happened to Charles I? Beheaded. Right. So he, beg- he goes against the Huguenots. However, this happens in 1685, the year James II comes to power, and you can almost say the revocation of the Edict of Nantes by Louis XIV made it almost impossible for James II in England to govern because it made all Catholic monarchs look like horrible tyrants who were just out to get uh, Protestants. Also, it was this rage to consolidate sovereignty that was behind Louis's efforts to reduce the power of the grand nobility. Now, he wasn't starting from scratch here. Uh, the prime minister of his father, Cardinal Richelieu, of free, free Musketeers fame, had already bombarded their fortified castles. He had also shown that he meant business towards the nobility by publicly beheading a popular long, young nobleman who was related by blood to the royal family. Why did he do this? Because the young man had ignored his ban on dueling. Why would that be important? Yes, guy. It makes the situation very very unstable. It makes it unstable. He wants a monopoly on violence. Nobody else gets to have it. Only the crown has it. Louis XIV went further, however. He outlawed the private armies of the great noblemen. So the independent power of the great nobility was abolished at last. If they want to fight, well, they have to put on the king's uniform and take their commissions from him. Louis XIV established for the first time a professional standing army of a quarter of a million men, salaried by the crown, uniformed by the crown, and put in barracks by the state, therefore loyal to him. He's the commander-in-chief. Now, this is a true example of sovereignty. This is a monopoly on the dispensing, not just of justice, but on the legal use of force. And it certainly offered direct benefits to Louis' subjects. Uh, These guys are fed by the state, so they don't have to pillage the farmers anymore. These guys are barracked by the state, so they don't have to be quartered by the poor peasants anymore. Their conduct is monitored by entendance, royal civil servants. And promotion is mostly by merit, and that made the military a much more respectable profession with a lot more public support than it had ever been before. Now, because of Louis's project to defang the nobility, He chose to patronize only non-nobles when he was doling out high positions in his government. He gave them to members of the urban bourgeoisie. These are not members of the middle class. These are rich merchants, rich townsmen. His aim here is not only to get control over his subjects, but most important, to get control over his own government. Now, under Cardinal Richelieu, government office had continued to go to those with high birth and titles. Members of the royal family, dukes, other peers had the right, actually, to sit on the Supreme Council of State and to hold the rank of minister. Others who hadn't inherited this right nevertheless might possess it if they simply bought the office. So governmental offices became the possession of private persons, either by inheritance or by purchase. Louis changed all that. He removed these people from positions of authority. First of all, his mother and his brothers. And he insisted that no one had the slightest right to participate in the government but the king himself. The point about appointing his top officials only from the bourgeoisie was that these guys, like his officers in the army, would be totally beholden to him He could dismiss them anytime he wanted. So we see him actually taking a leaf from the book of the Ottoman Empire, which had a famed bureaucracy at this period. The Ottoman Turks made a practice of taking Christian boys from their Balkan dominions, for example, Serbia and Bulgaria, converting them to Islam and then training them not only to fight for Islam, they were the famous Janissaries, but also... They would send them to professional school to learn administration and they would administer the Ottoman Empire. So they were given great power. They were freely promoted on the basis of their talent and loyalty and merit to the highest imperial offices. But they were not allowed to marry and they were not allowed to pass on lands and titles. So they formed an elite, but a gelded elite, you could call it that, an elite permanently dependent on the sultan and not connected to other sources of power. Louis' use of the bourgeoisie was a similar way to bring in talented people who wouldn't have powerful families that might demand favors and plead for this or that policy, people who might be able to protect wrongdoers if they uh, incurred royal displeasure. Louis' officials would not be ministers anymore. He got rid of that title for them. They became simple bureaucrats whose sole source of power was the crown. So the bottom line, nobles are down, bourgeois servants of the crown are up. But it was Louis's political genius to make these revolutionary changes tolerable. That is, to make monarchy the most important and powerful institution in the realm and to keep the nobility and the elites out of his hair, to keep them happy, something the Stuarts had never come close to being able to do. And he did this not only by assuring the nobles of their social standing, but also by allowing them continued social influence at the local level. When the nobles understood that the king was going to support them uh, in their local authority, they supported him in his central authority. Now, fortunately, Louis knew how to pick good central uh, civil servants. His economic minister, Colbert, was a kind of Ben Bernanke of his day. He stimulated the economy, but he did it in the way possible in the 17th century. That is, he tried to develop a national market. He abolished as many internal tariffs between towns, between provinces as he could. He built roads and canals. This, of course, stimulated growth by providing jobs and encouraging trade. And he also encouraged infant industries with protective tariffs. Now, altogether, these policies were known as mercantilism, government intervention to produce wealth. Uh, Subsequently, it came under attack by economic theorists like Adam Smith. But in France, it has never fallen entirely out of favor. And one could say the same is true in other parts of the continent, even today. Colbert also introduced important fiscal reforms that doubled royal revenue in the 1660s and 70s. He hired professional tax collectors. Uh, he increased the tax owed by nobility, He increased the taxes owed by clergy. These reforms brought unprecedented resources into royal coffers. So while the Stuarts are getting poorer and poorer, Louis is getting richer and richer. Louis didn't have a prime minister. He didn't have a chancellor like other monarchs and all of his predecessors had. He was his own prime minister, and he ruled within a council of ministers like our president within the cabinet. Fortunately, he was a good administrator. He had a high sense of duty. He worked hard and conscientiously, and he possessed the essential quality of a leader. He could pick good subordinates who could, were capable, really, of developing a policy, not just carrying it out. So his, bureau, his monarchy was highly bureaucratized. Now, bureaucratization appears in Europe wherever absolutism develops. And maybe the most famous case is Philip II in Spain. You remember Philip II? He was the husband of poor Mary Tudor, Queen Mary of England, 100 years earlier. But unlike Philip II, Louis didn't allow himself to be swamped by detail. He was actually able to get through his mountain of paperwork. And the consequence was that France got not just a highly centralized, but an efficient government beyond its dreams. The saying went, with an almanac and a watch, you could tell what Louis would be doing 900 miles away. And here is the emblem He chose to represent his monarchy, the sun. What is the sun? Why is the sun a good symbol for Louis? Why would he think so? Yes? Somebody started to say something back there? It's the center of the universe. universe. Great. And you were going to say Great, good. Any other ideas? This is another question you can't give a wrong answer. There are no wrong answers to this question. Any more? Well, another thing, it's regular. You can tell the time by looking at the sun if you know how to do it. And it's brilliant, right? It looks good. And that's what Louis did. So monarchy is now becoming a profession. And unlike any of the Stuarts, Louis understood that the profession of monarch requires the art of self-representation, self-presentation. It requires you to look and act like the center of the universe. And whatever his private vices, they never detracted from Louis' ability to command respect. Now, the young Louis was considered a handsome man. Uh, this was a view he shared. And he deliberately created an aura of glamour and celebrity and played upon it as an essential part of his reign. Little Louis was raised with the idea that the royal place he would occupy would be next to God's. And a book on the education of the king shows an instruction of the little boy. You should ask yourself each night before going to sleep, today, have I been God or have I been man? Now this question didn't leave him when he grew up and he actively supported royal propagandists who promoted him deliberately as a demigod. Now, he cultivated this image in large ways and small. You're reading Saint-Simon this week. you come across the line, I'm sure. He made everything precious by discernment and stateliness, to which rarity and brevity of his words added much. One of the things that was rare were not just his words, but his official jerkins, which he had made for him, and then similar ones for his entourage. We would call this a kind of leather T-shirt. And wearing them was such an honor, it was restricted only to the great nobility. No secretary of state, for example, could have one. But even for the nobility, there was a fixed number, and one had to be retired before another nobleman could take it on. So this people became to compete for these Uh, t-shirts. It was part of the politics of royal representation that the crown patronized culture. Now this isn't new. We've seen it uh, with the princes in the Renaissance and even Condottieri but under Louis the distinction between culture and propaganda tended to disappear. The architecture of Mansart, the paintings of Poussin and Lorraine, the sculptures of Bernini, the music of Louis, everything glorified the Sun King. In 1671, he established the French Academy to regulate the French language and keep it pure. And even today, the Academy is in existence. It's waging a long, twilight struggle against uh, the importation of Americanisms like hot dog uh, into the French language. So French became the language of other absolutist courts wiping out uh, Latin as the language of diplomacy, and it continued in Russia right on up to 1914. Now, this use of culture for royal political purposes reached its height in the Palace of Versailles. You see here a series of apartments and quadrangles. This is the palace that San simon was so contemptuous of, calling it an ostentatious pile of stones that was eating up taxes, Well, it certainly ate up taxes. Sixty percent of them were spent on Versailles and the court. Once Louis began to live there, however, Versailles combined all the qualities of New York City, the intellectual capital, with L.A., the entertainment capital, with Las Vegas, the sin capital, with Washington, D.C., the political capital. And in fact, Versailles and its grounds was as big as our district of Columbia, the biggest palace in Europe. It epitomized the political uses of culture. It was a gilded cage into which Louis attracted 10,000 of France's greatest and most dangerous noblemen and their families and their servants. They came to live there. Once there, the nobles entered their names in a long waiting list to be in Louis' attendance at his special moments. So now the big man who might otherwise have been plotting rebellion down off in his chateau finds his highest ambition is to hold the sleeve of Louis' nightgown uh, when he undresses or to fight over whether he's going to be the one to hand him his chamber pot. And even when the king wasn't present, his image was everywhere. Here he is as Apollo dressed also as a Roman uh, centurion And here is another uh, equestrian statue. Notice how dynamic and flowing Bernini's is. This is symbolic, really, of the Baroque. Compare it to Donatello's very staid Gata Malata. And here is Bernini's bust. Look how flowing, even dynamic, the the bust itself is. And then here we see Louis uh, looking good. And uh, finally, uh, Louis in heels, uh, which is one of his favorite uh, forms of dress-up. Okay, so here we are back to Versailles. Absolutism in aesthetic form. If this looks ostentatious, it was meant to. The twin structures in in the foreground, that's where he put his uh, bureaucracy. The chateau proper, where he lives, is in the middle uh, distance. This was his own personal space. You can't call it a private space. And this was the most important courtyard. Here's how you enter into Versailles. It's made to make you feel small, and that it pretty much succeeded. Uh, The king's bedroom was right there, and here is the highest uh, point in the whole complex. This is the chapel. Um, Here you can see it here. The interesting thing about the chapel, of course, is the king sits above the altar. That is, looking down on the priest, looking down on the blessed sacrament. The congregation, on the other hand, sit here when the king... Uh, They bow when the king bows, so who are they really bowing to? Are they bowing to the altar or are they bowing uh, to the king? You can see that God was a bit of a source of an embarrassment uh, to Louis uh, because, after all, he was higher. Now here's another uh, contemporary picture of Versailles from an old book. Thousands of people lived in these apartments. It was an incredibly structured environment, And once you got inside, there was no place you could possibly relax, but you weren't intended to relax any more than you're intended to relax in church. The importance of Versailles uh, was to define hierarchy. Access to the monarch was the symbol and the substance of power. Elaborate ceremonies were devised for his rising in the morning, his toilet, his every intimate activity. Half of his day was devoted to ceremonial. So your prestige was defined by whether or not you were allowed into his private spaces. The more private, of course, the higher the prestige. But of course, these spaces are not really private in our sense because nothing is really private there. On the other hand, nothing is really public, like the Golden Gate Park is public because access is restricted. Versailles included an indoor forest, 12,000 trees. Inside, outdoors, the gardens are formal. The eye is always guided. Uh, There's always a focus of attention. They're not designed to give people places to be alone in, places to contemplate nature. They are deliberately artificial-looking. This is not just art, but a whole world is being created here. Contrast this to uh, landscape gardening in England in the next century where the whole point was to fool the visitor into thinking he had wandered into Arcadia. Real nature, but real nature perfect. And this is elaborately designed just to create that effect. But Louis' gardens were designed to show man's control over nature. Uh, This opinion of real nature was captured by Oscar Wilde's dismissive comment. Comment 200 years later, nature is a place with a lot of uncooked birds flying around. His fountains are a set as sort of a stage set uh, showing him in control of water. And here is one of the many royal theaters. Oh, this is still the garden. Here's a royal theater. Versailles was a showcase not only for the tragedies of Racine and Corneille, but the, but the comedies of Moliere and for the opera and ballet which really got developed here, and Louis himself took part. It was a perfect symbol of his reign because ballet is, of course, extremely formal and controlled. In some ways, you could say the entire court was one big stage, pageantry at all times. Okay, this concept of Versailles was copied throughout Europe. Those stars indicate places that other countries or other provinces built little Versailles. Here is the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. Here is Schoenbrunn outside Vienna, built by the Habsburg monarchs, in direct imitation of Versailles. It was never finished because uh, eventually Maria Theresa, a very sensible person, said, it's just too expensive. Here we have a classic Baroque uh, uh, structure. This is an absolutist building. It is centered. It uh, shows a very strong boundary. A similar building at the same time. You know, recognize this one? This too has a courtyard. This too has a lot of symmetry. This is Mount Vernon. And you really know what the word provincial and colony means when you compare this to uh, the other little Versailles. Uh, let's look into the interiors. Here's the court where six-year-old Mozart astonished the Habsburgs with his virtuosity. You have to imagine what it was like to move through these spaces. Particularly, you're a foreign ambassador, you're approaching the the throne and there are mirrors everywhere looking at what you're doing. It's designed to intimidate you. This style is called the Baroque, and then later in its 18th century version, Rococo. Okay, let's see if we have a chance to sum up. Absolutism was never so absolute, even in theory as it sounds to us. It was mainly a matter of state policy, of making war and peace, of oversight of economic activity. Except for the regulation of religion, it did not attempt to exercise oppressive control over ordinary subjects' daily lives. They could go about doing what they wanted as long as they weren't, beating up on people. In this, therefore, it bears no comparison whatsoever to totalitarianism of the 20th century. So we shouldn't exaggerate what absolutism was able to do. Louis XIV, for example, knew he couldn't change the Salic Law, which determined the rights of succession, which said no female can ever uh, be the monarch, and he never tried to do that. He never dreamed of trying to do away with the right of property, however much he might attempt to extend his taxing power. Security of property, the ability to leave your property, your children, was never threatened. Unlike the Ottoman Empire, where all land belonged to the crown. The Marduk was also limited, at least theoretically, by God's laws. Moreover, absolutism was tolerable to the French because they didn't see any good alternative. Unlike England, France didn't have a single institution, a single legislature, that could claim to embody the nation. The estates general, which hadn't met since 1615, the parlements, which were law courts, uh, were run by the nobility and were all discredited. Moreover, Louis didn't have the option of dismantling absolutism in favor of self-government, even if he had wanted to. The aristocracy were simply not up to governing the country. They had proved it and the lower classes weren't ready for it yet. So I think it makes no sense to criticize absolutism per se, but we can, I think, evaluate the choices that absolutist monarchs make from within the system. And here we see Louis had two great failures. First, he left the state with more debt than when he found it. Eventually, he even had to go back to selling offices to raise money, turning taxation over to tax farmers who bought the right to collect taxes and then kept 50% of it or more for themselves. And if this meant taxes, of course, fell almost exclusively on those with the least ability to pay them. This was a nightmare that would haunt the French state on into the 18th century. His second failure was in foreign policy. He failed to establish consistent goals or set up clear priorities at various times he aimed at colonizing the new world conquering the Netherlands securing the Rhine frontier winning over Spain for his grandson and he allowed anger or grudges or ostentatious loyalty to an ally to divert him from the pursuit of long range goals thus he saddled France with the reputation of a rapacious bully The policy of the central government also, uh, well, I think I better better stop now. It looks like it's 3.30, and I don't want to be too absolutist myself. On Thursday, the scientific revolution.